God takes his worship very seriously. Even in the earliest chapters of Genesis, we see that there is a prescribed practice of sacrifice being made to the Lord. But by the time of Moses, God determines that both the practices and the place of worship be spelled out. In Exodus, God gives the specifications for constructing the tabernacle, a a tent in which sacrifice and worship are offered. And God sets forth the prescriptions for the building of the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the table for the showbread, the lampstands, the curtains, the boards, the laver, the veils, the bronze altar, the dimensions of the court, the oil of incense. Even the priest's garments must be fabricated to the finest specifications. Furthermore, the book of Leviticus spells out the specific practices that are acceptable for worship in Israel. And the expectation is that God's commands are to be followed to the letter. So serious to protect the worship that Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, offered strange fire on the altar and the Lord killed them immediately in Leviticus chapter 10. Once Jerusalem was settled and a more permanent temple was built, there were similar rules for worship that had to be followed. God never relaxed his commands for worship. Even when King Uzziah, who was one of Israel's better kings, when he dared to enter the temple and perform work that was designated only for the priesthood, God struck him with leprosy in Second Chronicles chapter 26. Because God is God, and he has the authority to tell his people how he is to be worshipped, especially in his own house. Now, this brings up a very interesting question over what is known as the regulative principle. The regulative principle came out of the Reformation in response to many of the unbiblical and even blasphemous worship practices of the Roman Catholic Church. But the regulative principle maintains that the church is to engage in worship practices that are spelled out in the Word of God. In fact, the Westminster Confession from 1647 states this, that the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited to his own revealed will that he may may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under the visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture, end quote. The challenge to that, and it's a good definition, and we would all say a hearty amen that God is worshipped a certain way, but what is prescribed in Scripture at certain places has been debated over the years and at times subject to various interpretation. Let me give you an example of this. What kinds of songs are we allowed to sing? Because Colossians 3.16 commands, Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanksgiving or thankfulness in your hearts to God. Yet some who hold to the regulative principle believe that we are only allowed to sing psalms, and others even specifying which psalter to use. So there's much variation of thought here. This is why our church and many other churches like us adhere to what we call the reverence principle, the reverence principle, that all things that we do in the General Assembly here are to be done with reverence to God, leaning on His Word for guidance. We want every part of the worship service, uh, pretty much everything from this opening scripture reading to the very last song, to be biblical and honorable and respectful to the Lord. In this, we believe that God is glorified, 
Because if Jesus returns on a Sunday and he were to walk into our church, would he be pleased? Or would he overturn the tables and tear down this pulpit? After all, the church belongs to him, and this house, with all the people in it, belongs to him. And so we must ensure that we do all that we can to glorify the Lord God. And so with that as an opening, let's turn to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to see how all of this connects together in just a minute. Matthew 21. Now Matthew 21 brings us to Passion Week, or the last week of Jesus' ministry before he goes to the cross. But in the beginning of Matthew 21, it places Jesus in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, riding into the city on the back of a donkey, thus fulfilling messianic prophecy. And as he rides in, the crowds, they lay down their coats on the ground in front of him, along with a pathway of palm branches, and they're crying out, and they're cheering, and they're praising, and they're saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Finally, after years of waiting, Messiah has finally come to Jerusalem. And where is the first place that he goes? To the temple. To the temple. Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Now, as we are going to see over the next couple of chapters in Matthew, a major theme that is repeated certainly in this chapter 21 and chapter 22 is the authority of Jesus. We're going to see this over and over again, the authority of Jesus. And the first place that he expresses this authority during Passion Week is right here in the temple. Now, this account is featured in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But interestingly enough, Mark places this event on Monday, just after the cursing of the fig tree. Uh, Matthew reverses the order of those, and so some scholars believe that perhaps that the Bible writers are working more thematically than chronologically, but either way, we know the timestamp of when these things are taking place. Of course, Jesus has been to the temple before, but this day is specific. It's unique. Again, verse 12. What does he do? Jesus enters into the temple. He drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Now, some are quick to note that John records this event happening much earlier, three years earlier, in fact. But when you look at both accounts of John chapter 2 and then the synoptic accounts here, there's a lot of differences. There are subtle differences between the two accounts. And many scholars believe that these are two distinct events. 
The argument is that Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, came into Jerusalem and overturned all these uh, all the businesses going on in the temple. He, he purged the temple at the beginning of his ministry in John chapter 2, and then he does so again at the end of his ministry here in Matthew chapter 21 and the synoptic accounts. But the question is, why does Jesus ransack the temple? Why does he do this? After nearly five centuries of transporting materials for the tabernacle, a permanent temple was finally built in Jerusalem by King Solomon in 957 B.C. This, is, this temple was known as Solomon's Temple, and he spared no expense in building a house of worship for the Lord. However, as Israel began to walk away from the Lord, they profaned the worship in the temple. Warning after warning was given, but to no effect. Finally, the Lord gave Israel over to the Babylonians, who then destroyed the temple in 587 B.C. But following their return from captivity, both the city and the temple were rebuilt with a man named Zerubbabel spearheading the effort, which was completed in 516 B.C. Now, by 20 B.C., so you're fast-forwarding several centuries, by 20 B.C., uh, King Herod remodeled the temple... He tore down much of what was remaining, and he erected his own version, which was completed right around 10 B.C. So Herod's temple, which was the second complete temple, Herod's temple was the one that was standing in the days of Jesus. But all throughout Israel's history, the temple was a symbol for worship, a nationalistic icon, a marker to tell all people everywhere that God was with them, the God of Israel. As in former years, however, Israel began to turn away from the Lord and profane his worship. By the time of Jesus, the temple, formerly known as a symbol for true worship of the true God, had now become a symbol of false religion, a symbol of legalism and hypocrisy and extortion and robbery and abuse and greed and vanity. See, the house of the Lord was no longer the house of the Lord. Until, that is, the Lord entered through the gate. And Matthew records that Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all the merchants that were there. When it says that he entered the temple, it's most likely that he's entering the temple mount, a piece of property that's approximately 25 acres in size. The temple mount was a, a massive piece of real estate. The temple itself, the building, was approximately 1,500 feet long. By a thousand feet wide, it was the largest structure in the Roman world at that time. But Jesus would have entered the large outer court, which is known as the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles were not allowed in the inner courts out of concern that they would profane the temple. But Gentile converts to Judaism could come and gather in the outer court where they could hear teaching, attend to prayer, and meditate on the word of God. That was their place to worship in Jerusalem. However, what the religious leaders of Israel had done is used that outer court to construct a bazaar, a, a center of commerce and trade. Now, if the Gentiles were to come to the temple and worship and pray, they would have had to do so in a large crowd of vendors and noisy customers and smelly animals and general commotion. It would have been chaos. They'd be trying to like hold a prayer meeting at the mall 
and having people just everywhere, all over the place, buying and selling and making noise and screaming and all these other things, and, and you're trying to just focus your mind and focus your heart on the Lord. And that's exactly what Jesus encounters as well when he walks into the outer court. What exactly does he see? What's the scene? Well, first he sees all those who were buying and selling in the temple. Now, naturally, with hundreds of thousands of pilgrims coming into the city, there were many needs, lots of reasons to buy and sell things in Jerusalem at that time. One of the key needs for the temple was an animal for sacrifice. If you did not have an animal with you, you had to get an animal to offer sacrifice to the Lord. Of course, there wouldn't be anything wrong with selling animals outside the temple. You know, somewhere in the city, you could buy anything anywhere in the city. That's okay. But they're doing it in a place that is designated for worship and for prayer. And to make matters worse, the merchants were inflating the cost of the animals to the point of highway robbery. In some cases, and I was reading some of the accounts of this, they were selling lambs and doves for upwards of 50 times the normal cost. So a five-cent dove is now going for four or five dollars. Craziness. But even further aggravating the situation was that most of the worshipers who were arriving in the city, they did bring their own animals with them, but they're being told by the priests that their animals were not acceptable for sacrifice. Because remember, they had to be spotless and without blemish. And so it was the job of the priest in this whole hustle to go and find some imperfection so they could disqualify the animal and then direct them to their own vendors to purchase an animal at inflated cost. You see the problem brewing here? And so they're in on this whole scheme. And so they're buying replacement animals inside the temple walls at an inflated cost. It was, in essence, extortion. And seeing this, Jesus drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple. Then he moved on to the money changers. Why were there money changers in the temple? Well, according to Exodus 30, verse 13, every worshiper that came to offer their praise and sacrifice to the Lord had to pay a half-shekel temple tax. So this is commanded by Scripture. Everyone, not everyone, had the proper currency to do so, however. There was much of Greek and Roman and other kinds of currency floating around, and so they would have to exchange their currency to obtain a half-a-shekel so they could pay the tax. But here's the thing. The money changers wouldn't do it for free. The exchange rate to transact currency was 6%. 6%. However, if you didn't have the exact change to make the trade, they would also charge you another 6% as sort of a processing fee. So before you could even get to the door, many of these people are losing 12% of their money just to get into the temple to then transact business and pay the tax. And so they're, they're bilking them before they can even make a purchase. Keeping in mind, this, this thievery is taking place in a court designated for prayer. But Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers. And then he gets to the dove merchants. Now the dove merchants, and it seems kind of weird to our modern ears, but this, is a, this was a highly lucrative business selling doves. Why? Well, because the dove was the poor man's offering. For those who couldn't afford a lamb or a goat, Leviticus 1.14 permitted the poor to sacrifice doves, which are very inexpensive. That is, unless they 
buy one at the temple. And that price would have been inflated as well. And so you have all of these poor people and sick people and lame people lining up at the dove stand, if you were, to get raked over the coals just so they could offer the most meager of sacrifices. And so what does Jesus do there? He overturns the seats of those who are selling doves. Mark 11.16 adds another note to this whole thing. It says that in the midst of all this, he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He shut down the entire operation. Well, how on earth could Jesus halt the entire enterprise over the course of a 25-acre area by his power and divine authority? In John 2.15, it says that he made a scourge of cords and he chased all the merchants out, whipping them behind them as he's chased them out, the, out of the gates. Perhaps he did this again, we don't know. Or maybe it was his voice. Remember, the voice of the Lord is what has the power, right? Maybe it was his voice that terrified all the merchants and, and by his divine wrath it drove them out. Certainly could be, we don't know. But what we do know is that through the course of this event, he emptied the entire 25-acre piece of property. There wasn't a single one of them left. And what was he saying to them? What was he yelling at them as he was driving them out? Verse 13, he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. This is supposed to be for prayer and worship, and you're a bunch of thieves taking advantage of my people. He was angry. This is righteous indignation. And this, this phrase here that he utters, it's taken from two different places. The first part of the phrase comes from Isaiah 56, verse 7, a passage speaking about the blessings of the temple during the millennial kingdom. Let me just read this verse to you. This is Isaiah. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. Ultimately, the purpose of the temple was to be a house of worship and joyful prayer. And yet the religious leaders and even the high priests, they're turning this house of prayer into a robber's den. And that phrase, robber's den, that comes from Jeremiah 7.11, a portion of Jeremiah's sermon deriding Israel for their unfaithfulness. Because even 600 years earlier, Jeremiah had witnessed the exact same thing. Israel turning God's house into a robber's den. And so by juxtaposing these two passages, what Jesus is essentially telling Israel is this. You're not worshiping in the spirit of Isaiah's blessed vision, but rather you're, worse, you're trying to conduct business in the cursed judgment of Jeremiah. Shame on you, is what he's saying. Woe to you. And so after driving out all the hucksters and merchants, what does he do then? What does he do? He ministers to the people. Look at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Oh, this is an understatement above all understatements, my friends. This is very cool. There are a few things to note here regarding the blind and the lame. And I want you to note this here. Leviticus 21.18 prohibits the blind and the lame from serving 
as priests in the temple. Because again, no, no defect was allowed to be presented inside of that service. That was commanded by the Lord. But by 2 Samuel 5.8, we see them being barred from entering the temple, the sanctuary, altogether. But by the time of Jesus, the progression has gone even farther, and the blind and the lame were not allowed to enter the congregation for worship. Why? This is largely due to the, to the belief that those with physical maladies were somehow under the judgment of God, and to welcome them in was to bring a curse. Of course, we know that from places like John chapter 9, that that's, that's not true at all. That a sick person is no more cursed than any other person. The, the, the infirmity or the deformity doesn't make a difference in all of that. But despite the prohibitions, Jesus does the unimaginable. He welcomes the blind and the lame into the temple with him, and he begins to heal them all. Here we see him display the, the love and the tenderness of those who are in the greatest need. Whereas the Sanhedrin, they exploited and profited from the poor and the disenfranchised, from the blind and from the lame, and yet Jesus ministers to them. But more than this, he heals them. He makes them whole again. And when he does this, they will now be able to join the congregation and worship God unhindered. He has changed them completely. That's the purpose of ministry, by the way. The purpose of ministry is to help broken people find God so they can worship Him. Because here's the thing. All of us, all of us are blind and lame and broken in some capacity. Some of us have physical ailments and diseases and sicknesses and things like that. Others are struggling with trauma and, and mental issues and emotional issues. Some are, are besieged with sins and indwelling sins. Some of us have broken marriages and broken relationships. I mean, we all are, are broken coming to the house of God to bring our worship, aren't we? Not a one of us are pure and clean and perfect at all. And so what do we do in ministry? And I'm not just talking about the pastoral ministry. All of our ministry, what do we do? We help one another to grow closer to the Lord, drive each other toward the Lord, and help each other minister, care for each other. Bind up the brokenhearted, don't we? And where do we get this crazy idea of helping each other to do this? From the one who can do it perfectly, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he does. But here's the thing. Not everyone is happy about this. Look at verse 15. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. For the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of Israel, this was a bridge too far. They were no doubt upset that Jesus had ruined their business, likely for the entire week. But once they witnessed him healing the sick, something they couldn't do, and then being praised for it, they became angry. And so here's the scene. The temple court has been completely purged. 
And there's likely still coins littered all over the ground, overturned furniture, broken furniture, animal mess and animal piles everywhere, straw, hay, whatever. It would have been kind of a mess throughout the entire court, totally emptied. And then in the midst of all of that sort of dispersed chaos, there's Jesus in the middle of the court, encircled by a large crowd of people, cheering as he heals them. And dancing around the court, around that crowd, are the children who are now mimicking the crowds from Palm Sunday, and they are chanting a refrain of Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means save now, save now. It's a cheer of praise and petition. This would have been surreal. Nothing like this would have been happening for hundreds of years up to that point. For those who were coming to worship God, this would have been amazing. And now those who are barred from worshiping are now entering freely, unburdened, having access to the Lord. But the chief priests and the scribes, this is maddening. Matthew records they became indignant, enraged, unhinged. They simply could not stomach that Jesus was being praised as Messiah while they were humiliated looking like fools. And so they quipped at him, verse 16. Do you hear what these children are saying? That's not a question, by the way. That's, a, that's an accusation. That's a rebuke. Do you hear these kids? Do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus answers back quite simply, yes, I do. <laughs> You've got to love the, the understatedness of that statement. Yes, I actually do hear them. But then he, he had done, as he'd done many times, he would continue to do, he quotes scripture. And he says this, have you never read? Oh, I love that. I love that. That's an insult to the most learned men in Israel. Have you not read your Bible? They would have got all flustered at that. Of course they've read their Bible. But apparently they didn't read it well enough. Have you not read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? That's a quote from Psalm 8-2. Psalm 8-2. Psalm 8 is what we call a, a creation psalm. A creation psalm. Let me just read it to you. Psalm 8, for the choir director on the Giddith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and their revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man? You would take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty and you make him rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the seas. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. In all the earth. Marvelous, marvelous. In other words, God has created all things so that He would be praised. He made all of this, all of creation, to praise Him. And so when the Lord comes to His temple, His house, the one that's erected to worship Him, why would He not hear the praise of children glorifying Him? 
Why would he not hear the chorus and the refrain exalting him as the Savior, the Son of David? Why would he not? But wrapped up in that quotation is also an accusation. Here's the thing. Even if the children, the children could acknowledge the Messiah and praise him, then surely the leaders of Israel should have recognized that he was the Lord and done the same. And yet they don't. Instead, they begin to plot his murder. That's how defiled their hearts and their understanding are. They don't praise him. They don't give him honor and glory. They purpose in their heart to kill him. Verse 17. Matthew 21, verse 17. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Jesus doesn't stay in the city. Instead, he sought refuge in the home of his friends in Bethany. We know that he had many friends there, including a man named Simon the leper, who I like to call Simon the ex-leper, because Jesus no doubt healed him. But he also has friends Lazarus and Mary and Martha there. And you can be sure that the religious leaders spent their evenings trying to concoct a way to entrap him. And yet Jesus is in Bethany, reclining at the table, relaxing with his friends. In fact, Luke 19, verses 47 and 48, records at the end of this account that Jesus was teaching daily in the temple. Every single day that week, he was teaching in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. But they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on every word he said. So they spent their whole week trying to find a reason, trying to find a way to get rid of him. But in addition to teaching, Jesus also sparred with the Sanhedrin, as we're going to see over the coming chapters, refuting all their accusations. Of course, by Friday morning of this week, Jesus would be in chains. And by the afternoon, he would be on the cross. And by the evening, he would be in the tomb. But we know that he did not stay in the ground, right? His authority extended even beyond the grave to the resurrection, to his ascension, and to the regeneration of all of his people. Because why did Jesus come to earth? Why did he ride into the city and live here and minister here? Why did he come to this world? He came to save that which had been lost. Jesus came perfect, true God, perfect, true man. He came to give his life as a ransom payment for you and for me. He came to do what none of us could do. All of us are sinful and desperately wicked, the Bible says, inside of our hearts. Our hearts devise all kinds of evil. And yet Jesus came to pay that sacrifice for us, to free us from the chains of sin and death and give us everlasting life in Him. And what must we do to receive this gift of everlasting life. You must turn away from your sins. Repent, which means you confess, Lord, I am wrong. I am guilty. You're right. I deserve punishment. Please forgive me. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And the Bible says that for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, 
And here's the promise, beloved, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And so that is our gospel. That is our good news, that Jesus came to give life and to give it abundantly. Do you know him? Do you trust him? Do you worship him? Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that even though there is no more temple on earth as we would think of it, the Bible says that the temple of the Holy Spirit is our own bodies, that you reside and dwell with us and in us, and that we are to glorify you in our body, in our daily life, in our worship, in our speech and thought, in our lives, our our living sacrifices to you, O Lord. But Lord, we can't do this unless we belong to you. And so I pray, Lord, that you would redeem that which has been lost, that you would bind up the brokenhearted and heal their wounds. Lord, there may be people coming in to this assembly this morning who are completely broken and destroyed. Maybe they're believers and they've just had a a really hard week or this is a hard season for them. And they know that they need to put their trust in you even today. Not necessarily to be saved, but to walk and to live in their salvation. To trust in you. And Lord, would you minister to them? Would you help them and heal them, Lord? But Lord, for those who are coming in here this morning and they don't know you. They've never trusted you. They're trying to live their life on their own terms, thinking that they're going to get to heaven simply because they exist. They don't realize that there is judgment coming against their sins. They don't recognize that you are a holy and righteous God and you will not be in fellowship with sinfulness. But Lord, that they might see the glory of Christ and turn away and say, Lord, I give up. I'm done doing this on my own. I need you. Save me, forgive me, heal me, redeem me. Lord, would you answer that prayer today to save the lost, to give them new life in Christ. Please, O Lord, save them, redeem them, heal them. But Lord, all of us who come together as your church, we do this in your house, not the building, not the walls, but Lord, your people are your house and you dwell with us, and we worship you in spirit and truth. Oh Lord, would you be pleased with the heartfelt, honorable spiritual worship that we offer, not just in word and in deed, but also in devotion to you, in holiness and in sanctification, and in humble dependence on you, O Lord. We know that we are justified not by our deeds, We are justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Lord, make our faith even more sure. Lord, revive our hearts today. We beg you. And we do all this in Jesus' name. Amen.